The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at his tax booth, and he said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the Pharisees said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words. Father, we believe that these words had power for Matthew and his readers. But we also believe they have power for us if we will hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit and open these words to us as never before that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why do some people follow Jesus and some don't? Or at least not yet. Why do some people follow Jesus and others don't? At least not yet. There was a Lawyer sitting in a priest's office. No, this is not the start of a joke. There was a lawyer sitting in a priest's office struggling to find the words to explain what had happened to him over the weekend. This man was known for his many words and eloquence, and yet something had happened on that weekend, and he could hardly put together a sentence to describe it. What happened to him on that weekend? You're going to have to wait and see at the end of the sermon. (laughs) Why do some follow Jesus and others don't? Or at least not yet. Why do some people follow Jesus and yet others don't? At least not yet. This story from Matthew's gospel uh, is Matthew's own story. He fits it in here. It's his own conversion story, Matthew 9. And we read in verse 9 that Jesus came along, saw Matthew in his tax book, in his tax booth, and said these words, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. I mean, the challenge is there's other moments in the Bible when Jesus walks by someone and invites them to follow. You think of the rich young ruler. And when he weighs the cost, he does not at least yet, follow Jesus. Why does Matthew follow? I mean, first we need to understand what follow me means. When Jesus comes to Matthew and says, follow me, he's using very specific language. He's calling Matthew to become his disciple. You see, Jesus is, by this point, a well-known rabbi. And in the ancient Near East, rabbis would go around and do this. They would find disciples. 
And to be a disciple meant that you were going to walk with this rabbi and not just listen to sermons, but rather you were going to learn how to live your life like that rabbi. And if you lived it enough, if you truly entered into that rabbi's life, eventually you'd be set free to be your own rabbi and go out and gather your own disciples. And so when Jesus walks by Matthew's tax booth and says, follow me, he's saying, I'm a rabbi, I want you to become my disciple, to be my apprentice, to be my student, to learn the way that I live and convey that to the world. He's really saying, come with me and let's change the world together. And Matthew says, yes. But why? Why does Matthew say yes? There's a cost. He's got to leave his tax booth behind. There's there's always a cost when we follow Jesus. Why does Matthew say yes? And so quickly. Well, there's three things in this text, I think, that jump out really clearly that help Matthew get to that place. And if we look at them and we'll see them in our own lives, we'll recognize that these same three things are today what will help a person say yes to that call that Jesus is giving to each and every person. Would you follow me? See, Matthew, first of all, knows that he's sick. He's sick. He knows he's got a problem. But not only has he got a problem, Matthew also realizes he's sunk. You see, it's not just that there's a sickness that he can get over. He realizes that this is a sickness that leads unto death. There's no getting out of this. There's nothing he can do about this sickness. He's sunk. He's done for. And that puts him in exactly the right position that he can meet his Savior. You see, if he's sick and he knows he's sick, if he's sunk and he knows he's sunk, then along comes a Savior and he's ready to say, save me. First of all, he's sick. Matthew knew he was sick. Verse 12, Jesus has these words. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. Where does this sickness language come from? Why does Jesus turn the discussion to sickness? Well, when we look at chapter 9, we realize that what's happening here with Matthew's own conversion is linked to the story that just preceded it. And we know that because if you look at verse 9, it begins by saying, as Jesus passed on from there, Well, where's there? In other words, it's a link. It's saying something just happened, and now Jesus is passing on from there. These stories are linked together. The there is verses 1 through 8. This is the story of the paralytic. That story where Jesus is preaching one night, and all of a sudden the roof of the house he's preaching and gets torn up so that four friends can begin lowering this man on a stretcher down in front of Jesus that he could be healed. They want Jesus to make the man walk. But what does Jesus do in that moment? He does ultimately make him walk, but verse 2, he does something very strange. He looks at this sick man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And it it freaks out the religious authorities because they say no one but God can forgive sins. But what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's pointing through the bodily illness to the deeper condition behind this man. Sure, this man needs to be healed bodily, but what he really needs is to be healed of his deeper sickness, his sin. And so this is the sickness that Jesus has come to deal with. He's come to ultimately put us back together to deal with our sin. Now, sin is not exactly a popular topic 
uh, these days. If you're in a you know, social gathering and you say, well, why don't we talk about the reality of sin in the world? Um, it might not exactly be the best way to proceed with your Labor Day weekend meal with your neighbors. You think of the, I mean, I'd argue that everyone really is quite aware of their sin, though. Um, it's not that hard to convince someone. Um, just give them five minutes of quiet reflection time. And I think most people say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. You, you think of the letters to Santa, you know, the three, the, the letter to Santa that begins like this. He says, dear Santa, there's, there's three little boys that live in this house. Uh, there's Harold, uh, and he's, he's good some of the time. And uh, there's Tom, and he's good most of the time. And, and then there's Alfred, and he's good all of the time. I am Alfred. <laughs> and the reason we laugh at that is because we know it, it's cute because that's not true. I mean, Alfred's not perfect, and none of us are. We know our sin. We know we're broken. We know our sickness. And Matthew really knows his sickness. He wears it right in his profession because Matthew is a tax collector. See, three times in this text, verse 9, tax booth. Verse 10, tax collectors and sinners. Verse 11, tax collectors and sinners. I mean, in five verses, tax collectors gets mentioned three times. Matthew's trying to hammer home the point. You need to realize I'm a tax collector, or at least I was a tax collector. You see, tax collectors in the ancient Near East are not the modern-day equivalent of IRS agents. In the first century in Israel, Tax collectors were Jewish men who were cooperating with a pagan occupational force that had taken over the Jewish homeland. These pagans had run in, and they knew they had to get the taxes out of the locals. So they needed young men who were bilingual, who could speak both Aramaic and Greek, knew the customs, knew where to find people, and they would take that young man, make him a tax collector, give him a centurion as his guard with all those weapons of war, and together they would go out and make sure that they got every penny of tax out of those Jewish residents. And then he could add on top of his tax whatever he wanted for his own salary. And if you disagreed, look at the pagan centurion standing right next to him. He'll enforce it. These guys were seen as absolute turncoats. They were occupied, they were cooperating with a pagan emperor. They were ripping off their fellow countrymen. They were sinners and they knew it. In fact, a commentator describes the condition of a tax collector in the first century. Listen to this. By Jewish law, a tax collector was barred from the synagogue couldn't go to church. He was included with things and beasts considered unclean according to Leviticus 20. So therefore, you shall separate yourselves from all things unclean, including tax collectors. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case, and robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classified together. Robbers, murderers, tax collectors, according to Jewish law, basically the same thing. This is who Matthew is. This is the guy who has Jesus the rabbi walk by his tax booth and say, I want you to be my disciple. I mean, can you see how much his sin 
was painted right in his life, right on his face, right in his profession. He knew that he was sick. He knew he was a sinner. But not only did he know he was sick, Matthew, the tax collector, knows he's sunk. He knows there's no solution to this. And we know this because we look at the contrast with the Pharisees. You see, Matthew knew he was sunk. He knew he could do nothing about his sickness. It is a sickness that leads unto death. But the Pharisees in verse 11 pop in. And they come to Jesus' disciples and they're horrified that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees had a solution in their minds. Here's how we'll deal with our sickness. The Pharisees believed there was a sickness. They believed in sin. But they said, here's how we solve it. We'll solve it by doing this. We're going to read our Bibles really, really carefully. I mean, it sounds good at first, doesn't it? And out of that Bible, we're going to extract all the laws of God, all the rules, all the obligations. And they came up with a list of 615 laws. 615. And they said, if a man could live by those 615 laws and never break them, then you could stand sinless before God. You could be considered righteous. You could be holy. You could have dealt with your sickness. The Pharisees had their solution. And so they walked around very serious, reminding people and pointing out all of their sins and said, if you could just get over this, if you can work just a little bit harder, you can be free of your sickness. I mean, it looked really good. But Jesus had words for these Pharisees. A nasty word. Do you know what he called them? Actors. He called them actors. The word is hypocrite. That's what it means, actor. I mean, you look good on the outside, but really underneath that? He had another word for them once. He called them whitewashed tombs. You know, you look good, you look clean, but that doesn't stop the fact that you're dead. You look good, you look like you've solved this problem of sickness, but you really haven't. I found this recently um, when we look at the reality of sin management not working, that we always fall into this propensity towards sin. Like we can't help ourselves. Sin will trip us up along the way. Um, as I've been trying to become a little more Texan, uh, some folks from the parish have been taking me out to the gun club. And uh, it's, it's great. And I'll tell you, I only shot once when I was a kid. I was 13 and I shot a 22 rifle. So it had been a whole like long period of time and I went shooting, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm really good. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm really good. Like, I, 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 I got the targets to prove it. I'm, I'm a good shot. Until about three weeks ago, I've been shooting a bunch and going, wow, I'm really, really good at this. And they were all telling me how good I was. And then three weeks ago, I went shooting, and I could not hit the target to save my life. And I was checking the, the pistol and going back. Couldn't couldn't hit the target. I said, you know what? Maybe this is the Lord's way of just trying to, you know, bring down my ego a little bit. And it was just a bad week. Came back the next week, same issue. Could not hit the target. Now this is getting embarrassing, right? Came back just this week. And the pistol owner said, you know what we realized? There was a spring loose in the sights and the sight was totally off 
and it was shooting high. He fixed it, put it back together, and I'm really good again. <laughs> the point is this, and, and by the way, if you don't believe me, here's my little advertisement. Uh, some of you saw on Facebook, there are Threads of Hope, which is one of the ministries we support here at Christ Church, is having a clay shoot on the 23rd of September, on a Saturday. So if you want to come and see the rector's mad skills, you should sign up and support this great ministry. So you can talk to uh, Father Jeff Ron afterwards. But in all honesty, it was a great metaphor for me of our life in sin. That there's, there's moments when you're, you're, you're aiming for the target, you're trying to live a good life, and you just say, why do I keep missing the target? I'm, I'm trying to do well, but I keep falling short. You know, it's kind of like I've done well for a few weeks, but then something falls off for me. I've been really trying to be a good man, and then all of a sudden something goes stray. What is that? Well, you know this is actually in the Bible, right? Romans chapter 7 says this exact thing. I'm reading a paraphrase here from Romans 7, but it really, it sounds like it came out of my prayer journal, and maybe out of yours. You got to remember, this is Paul writing. He's a Pharisee, a former Pharisee, writing these words from Romans 7 about our propensity towards sin. What does he say? He says, what I don't understand about myself, Romans 7, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So, if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, for I know the law, but I still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there ready to trip me up. This is Romans 7. And this is what so many of us know to be true in our lives. This is the experience of feeling sunk. There's something wrong with me. There's something deeply wrong within me. It's not just a sickness. It seems to be an incurable one. Matthew, the tax collector, knows it. And this is what's key. Matthew knows he's sick and he knows he's sunk. The problem with the Pharisees is they think they've got a solution for it. They don't think they're sunk. They think they're okay. They think they're making progress with their sin management. I, I saw this in my life. I've seen it many times, but a, a number of years ago, when we were still in Ottawa, um, I was doing an exercise with my staff at work, and we were talking about blind spots, right? Blind spots, things you're not, and I said, this is different than weaknesses. You can self-identify weaknesses. You need other people to tell you your blind spots if they're truly blind spots. And so we were going through this exercise, helping each other to understand our blind spots. Not exactly a 
enjoyable exercise, but a good exercise nonetheless. And I came home, and I, I, I told Monica all about this, and I said, you know, one thing after all this discussion, though, I was able to say to my staff, though, I said, you know, thanks for helping me identify some blind spots, but here's one thing I know. I know, you know, that I'm really cool under pressure. And, of course, I'm the boss, so no one said anything. Monica, on the other hand, <laughs> said, you're cool under pressure? I said, yeah. And she said, well, actually, you know, your stress is pretty present and apparent when it's around for everyone to see. And I said, I just don't see that, honey. And she said, that's why it's called a blind spot. <laughs> Monica went off to do something else and my four dear, our four dear little kids were there and I turned, they were on the couch, sort of, you know, those awkward moments where they're listening in on that kind of conversation. And I turned to the jury, my kids, and I said, kids, I mean, mom's out of the room now, but come on, I'm right, right? And all four of them shook their heads and said, oh, daddy. <laughs> we need to realize the state that we're in. We need that sobering reality that says, I am sick. And left to my own devices, I'm sunk. There's nothing I can do about it. You see, Matthew realizes he's sick and he realizes he's sunk. The Pharisees think they've got a solution. But if you realize that you're sick and you realize that you can't do anything about it, a sick, sunk sinner is exactly in the place that Jesus needs them to be. Because then they can finally receive a Savior. When you know you need a Savior, you can receive one. That's what happened to Matthew. This Jesus walks by his tax booth and says, why don't you be my disciple? You follow me. Verse 13, Jesus says this, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees believed that their, their rituals and their rules were going to get them into a good place with God. But Jesus is quoting the prophet Hosea in chapter 6. And what Hosea is saying to the people of Israel is, you're all very religious, but you don't know God. You go off and you do your pagan things, and then you get all dressed up the next day in your nice church clothes and go to church and you think that somehow by going through those rituals, you're fine with God. You do not know the heart of God then. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And he wants you to show that mercy. If you knew the heart of God, you would yourself become merciful because you'd see that his heart, he accepts you and loves you out of mercy, not because you earn it. I love the definition of mercy in the Oxford English Dictionary. You know that gigantic dictionary you need to use a magnifying glass to read? Forbearance and compassion shown to a powerless person. That's mercy. Or an offender. Or even better, to one with no claim to receive kindness. Kind and compassionate treatment in a case where severity is merited expected that's what mercy means you don't earn it you see Jesus comes to Matthew 
in mercy. It's merciful for him to walk by to this sick, sunk sinner and say, follow me. You've done nothing to earn this. Just come be my disciple. But then he puts on a display because in verse 10, it then says that as he's reclining at table, which means he's having his meal, that all the tax collectors and sinners, all of Matthew's friends start coming. And they all start hanging out with Jesus. And as we've seen before in the ancient Near East, when you have a meal with somebody, that that says something. You see, we in North America are okay with things like food courts in malls, where you sit around with a whole bunch of strangers and have a meal. That would never work in Jesus' day. Because if you sit around with a group of people in Jesus' day and have a meal, it's saying that I'm with you, I'm for you, we are brothers, we are sisters. It's acceptance. And Jesus is putting on display his mercy before this whole community. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, not because they've earned it, because they can't. If they can realize it, they know they're sick and they know they're sunk. There's nothing they can do. So here comes the Savior and says, won't you come to the table? Won't you come? Let me do for you what you cannot do. And to a sick, sunk sinner, that mercy changes everything. It worked for Matthew. It worked. He followed Jesus. He only gives us a few verses about this conversion, but he gives us a whole rest of a gospel that demonstrates that it worked. He followed. He wrote it down. Can you imagine Matthew taking the time to write this story? Can you imagine as he's writing his gospel and then he says, okay, Lord, now is this, is this the place where I put just a few short verses about what Jesus did for me? The whole book's about mercy, but let me show this one little story of how Jesus personally showed me his mercy. And I love when he does that, he throws this little word, and on this I close, he throws this little word in there. Just to give us a full effect I mean, how much did it really work that Jesus came along to this absolutely sick, sunk sinner and said, come, let me show you mercy. Did it work? It did because he says in verse 9 that after Jesus says, follow me, he says, and he rose and followed him. And that word rose is not a throwaway word. It doesn't just mean he stood up. Rose is the exact same word that's used of the angel at the empty tomb that says Jesus is not here, he has risen. It's the word that's spoken over the disciples on the road to Emmaus that say, we have met Jesus risen from the dead. It is the language of resurrection. It's the language of new life. If up to this moment, this sick, sunk sinner has really been truly spiritually dead before God, in this moment that Jesus shows him mercy and says, follow, he comes alive. He rose. Resurrection happened. Easter happened for him in that moment. A dead man became alive, and it happens every time, even today, that a sinner says yes to that mercy from Jesus. Resurrection happens. New life happens, and he rose Matthew says, that was my day of resurrection. Why do some follow Jesus? And why do some not? At least, not yet. Matthew shows us in his little biography, to follow Jesus, we need to know we're sick. We need to know we're sunk. 
And then we're in the exact place to say yes to a savior. That lawyer sat in that priest's office struggling to find words to explain what had happened to him over that weekend. This man, this lawyer who was known for his many words and eloquence could hardly put together a sentence to describe what had happened on that weekend. This man had been unchurched for many, many years. It started attending church again and felt that his heart was slowly warming to God. But then he went on this weekend Christian retreat and God showed up powerfully. First, he was deeply convicted of his sin more than ever before in his life. He knew he was a sink, sick, sunk man. But then he heard more than ever before about mercy and what Jesus had offered to him on the cross. He was undone by it. And he gave himself to Christ then and there. I was the priest. And that lawyer is my father. And I think the amazing thing in all of it is that he shows that Jesus is not just in the business of rescuing tax collectors. He can even rescue lawyers. Jesus is speaking those words over all of us as we're sitting in our tax booths. Follow me. You're sick. Do you know it? Without me, you're sunk. Do you know it? Come and receive me as your Savior. Come and receive what you cannot earn. Come and receive mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.